That's right, dear listeners, there is a poop storm a-coming. The following episode of Comfortable Place on the Couch contains salty language. Parental discretion is advised. Welcome to Comfortable Place on the Couch Series 2, a regularly scheduled podcast where a couple of Canadians talk about a band full of Australians and a New Zealander bassist to midnight oil fans all around this shipyard of New Zealand. My name is Darren Folds, and in the coming months, I'll be listening to all those Midnight Oil songs that didn't make it onto their studio albums. We're talking about B-sides, covers, demos, and maybe a few other tracks, if the fancy strikes me. Joining me each episode is my best friend and fellow Midnight Oil enthusiast, Robin Harbron. Welcome to the virtual couch, Mr. Harbron. Well, thank you very much, Darren. Nice to be here. It's good to see you, and... It's almost like our our third co-host is back on the virtual couch, couch this week. Nick, it's how very, are you doing very today? Comfy, it's a comfy, comfy couch. I'm very happy to be here. We have Nick Lane, uh, producer extraordinaire on the podcast again this week. You, of course, will know Nick as the producer of Midnight Oil's 1098, Red Sails in the Sunset, and Earth and Sun and Moon, and general friend and fan of the band hello everybody it's nice to have you back i just want to say hello to all the fans out there thanks for listening to all those records yes nick we normally do a little bit of housekeeping at the beginning of the episode so if it's all right with you i'm going to read a couple emails that we received this last week fantastic so the first email comes in from uh listener bugsy he says the Nick part one episode was fascinating. I really loved all the genuine enthusiasm and surprise from you both. Uh, when Nick was sharing some of those nuggets, I was listening and going, wow, myself. I never put two and two together that that same smashing light globe was in both power and the passion and in, oh, he just put down the abbreviation, R-A-I. Read about it. Read about yep. it. Yes. Oh, it, it. Do I even like Midnight Oil? <laughs> and, and, and I always, though, right up until I heard Nick say it, that the extra beat in the middle of the Power and the Passion solo was just something that was ultra cool. But no, it was only a production mistake. Ha ha. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Bugs, for your email. Um, our friend Nancy writes... This was fantastic. I am now re-watching the Only the Strong documentary about the making of the 10 to 1 album that's on the Overflow Tank, and it's a wonderful compliment to the episode. Apparently, Rob was more excited about working with Nick than Nick remembers, but basically, the stories line up. Oh, and Nancy is a librarian, so she does her homework, Nick, so ah. it's, it's good to know that, that, the, that the stories are lining up there. Good, good. The stories about Giffo that Nick tells are hilarious and lovely. Well, it was hilarious to be there and, and witness that, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. And she has a question that I think we probably will get to um, in the episode, but Nancy was asking, can you ask Nick if he feels, as Jim did, um, she's got a quote from 
uh, Jim from Michael Lawrence's uh, Big Yellow book talking about uh, going crazy with the overdubs and and maybe getting a little bit further away from the songwriting and more into the sonic. So maybe we can touch on that when we're talking later on, Nick. Absolutely. Um, maybe one more here. This is from Jeff. Jeff says, a quick note to say, wow, well done on the Nick Lane interview. I'm only halfway through, but it's been amazing to listen to. Nick is obviously still passionate and interested and keen to talk. Thanks for having him on the podcast. And thanks for talking uh, to Minot Oil fans, Nick. Well, this is great. I'm glad people are enjoying it. Oh, yeah, we are. Let's get right into things. Kind of taking off of where... We ended with talking about 1098, getting more into the red sales era. When you finished working on 1098 and it was complete, did you and the band know that you were going to be working together on the next album? Or did you have to wait for it to become the huge success that it was before they asked you back? Or how did that, how did that work out? How did you get on to the, the next project with them? Right. Well, I mean, I don't think I knew that I would be doing the next one. I think usually when you do any album with any band or any artist, you're so in the moment of finishing the one you're doing that um, you just hope that it's good. And, you know, it, it takes, I would say it takes about a month after you've finished an album to actually then listen to it and realize what it is and be clear about what it is because you know, it's a it's it's a little by little process, and you build it up and build it up, and sometimes you do things, and then you take them off, and you backtrack, and you refocus. Um, I knew I could say that I absolutely knew when we finished the album and was was mastering it that it was an extraordinarily good album. I I knew that, and um, it's it's worth also mentioning that the very final process of mixing the album. Uh, the band actually went back to Australia, except for Pete. Okay. And Pete actually literally had his hands on the desk with me, pushing faders up and down. You know, I, I, oh, I, really? I would, wow. yeah, I set it all up and was mixing it. But because uh, that album was mixed uh, manually, it wasn't, there was no automation. I mean, the desk had automation, but it was, yeah. it was pretty primitive. And I'd set it up so that the moves were, uh, you know, not complicated and and um i mixed it in a way that was very natural mm -hmm. so the big changes in the mix as far as like verse to chorus or chorus to middle eight and back were done via editing so in other words i mixed all the verses of a song then had them on tape and it was mixed to um half inch analog tape at 30 ips for, for you geeks out there <laughs> uh, and um and then i'd then i'd set the desk up a, a different way for the choruses mix all the choruses then i'd set up the middle bit and so we did it that way and each time we, we ran the verses let's say we would have a go and we'd do it and pete would move some faders i'd move some faders and the assistant would move some as well right on. which um actually the assistant on that album was uh gavin mckillop who's a record producer pretty successful record producer in his own right he did an album with hunters and collectors for example which is a fantastic mm. record sure and he did that yeah. after after that um so yeah, it was a very hands-on, very exciting thing. And sometimes, 
you know, when you're moving faders up and down because they're physical, sometimes you overshoot and things happen. And then we listen back and go, that's the best verse. That's the best chorus. So I'd edit actually our performance of the mixes, which is kind of fun. Um, So, yeah, Pete was there and he was so excited about the tracks. He was, I mean, I, I remember some fantastically Australian comments coming from him saying like, wait to the folks in Malambimbi hear this one and stuff like that. You know, it's just like, I was like, where's Malambimbi? What is Malambimbi? What does that even mean? What does that even mean? And um, he was particularly excited when we finally came up with the running order, which is pretty adventurous, I would say. Uh, He was very excited that Outside World was starting the album and the fact that it segued into only the strong uh, because only the strong mm-hmm. is a typical you know high energy midnight oil song i mean it's it's everything that they are about it's you know the the everything the playing rob's crazy drum fills everything it is midnight oil at their best however outside world starts with a keyboard which is not necessarily what Midnight Oil have in their band, you know, in in that way. They're not known for, you know, that kind, especially a synth keyboard that's going boom, 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 boom. So he had this whole thing of just thinking, I can't wait till the fans hear this because they're going to put the record on. And the first thing they hear is going to be boom, 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 boom. They're going to be like, what? what is this record? Is this Human League? Have I put the wrong record on? And then, you know, it's like there's no rock in that record until a bit later on. Then the big drums come in. When I'm locked in my room I just want to So he was like imagining Midnight Oil fans sitting there in their cars or whatever and that coming on. But then, of course, it builds up and builds up, and it's very interesting. And then, bang, you know, only the strong comes in, yeah. and, and, and any Midnight Oil fan is just going to be 100 150% satisfied. So so he yeah. was excited about that. Yeah, you right know? On. yeah, only the strong was recently voted, essentially, as the all-time favorite uh, of all Midnight Oil songs. Like by the fans. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was this process of elimination, a wow. survivor series. Yeah. That's amazing. That that's amazing. That really, really uh warms my heart enormously. I mean it's yes. I, 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 I you know, obviously I'm biased, but I would agree because when you see them live, that energy hmm. is captured in in that song. It's just this everything is there. The vocal is extraordinary. It's it's Peter at its best and it's got lots of ad-libs that only Pete could do. Uh, it's got, a, you know, a political lyric. The guitar interplay between Jim Martin is extraordinary. I mean, and the drums are just, I mean, it, it is Rob at at his ultimate. I mean, it really is. Those drum fills are, are everything Keith Moon... Uh, wished you had played. <laughs> it sounds like you had a, a good inkling then as you were working on the mixing and having Pete in the room that, that you knew that there was going to be more time spent recording with the oils then. I, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. I, I felt that there was an incredibly productive 
meeting of the minds, which is is what it's all about when you're making records. And it wasn't just a great friendship that, that, that grew and grew during the making of the album. We had fun doing it. And and the end result, I knew in mastering, like, this is an incredible record. One other little story, if I can just tell a little story, because it's amusing. Yeah. It was only, I think, during the mixing of the record. So, you know, we'd spent our, whatever it was, month and a half doing all the recording. Um, Gavin McKillop, who was assisting me, went into the maintenance room where they fixed the equipment and there was a a video machine in there actually it might have been just before the band left so we basically finished the recording of the album um and gavin who's scottish came in came in and said uh nick um i think you might want to come and have a look at this and uh i was like what what is it he said he said just just come now have a look and we went into the maintenance room and it was just me and him there and I think the band or or maybe Gary Morris had been looking at video footage of the band playing in uh, a gig in Byron Bay, actually in Marambimbi. <laughs> uh, so we pushed play and I watched. And basically it was Midnight Oil, you know, outdoor concert. And what looked like over a million people. I mean, it wasn't a million people. It was thousands and thousands and thousands of people going <laughs> apeshit. And it was the first time I realized how big they were in, in Australia, you know, because all I'd right. experienced up to that point was uh, my, my girlfriend going on about how great they were, then meeting them and then seeing them live at, at a relatively small venue you know it was maybe a thousand people if if that and of course i'd just gone in there and you know accused them of sounding like the eagles and you know putting <laughs> parts in here and there that were 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 different to what they'd done before uh, you know well, obviously they 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 wanted to do this but it just suddenly i was like oh my god this is definitely mm. going to be quite something when this record comes out for the fans you know right on well, let's transition to Red Sails then. All right. So Red Sails opens with Rob singing lead yeah. vocals. And so I don't know if, if you have an answer for this question, but I remember when we were talking, you mentioned that often Pete would come in to record his vocals and then just start singing his own words, right? True. So I'm wondering if maybe, do you remember when 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 this was recorded? Was, was this a case of Rob putting his foot down and saying, you know, these are the lyrics, Pete, this is what they are. And Pete saying, okay, well then you have a sing at them, bud. Or do you remember? Yeah, this is uh, when the generals talk, the opener of Red Sails. Right. Do you remember like how those kind of decisions might've been made? I remember them like they were yesterday. It's, it's amazing how these, you know, <laughs> I, I can't remember certain things I did this morning, but I can remember stuff that I did in, in, in Japan, you know, tens of years ago um <laughs> yeah yeah it, it it probably will make a lot of this album be understood by by people um okay so basically what happened with that is that when we went to japan to do this record pete had become more let's say more obsessed with politics he was uh you know actually getting into politics and probably was building up to to wanting to be 
actually a politician, although that wasn't mm-hmm. talked about or mentioned. But but there was just this feeling that his head was uh, perhaps in in an area of I can do more to help the world by saying what I think and and having a political pl- platform. So when we were in Japan, he took the opportunity uh, to go to Hiroshima. There was a big, uh, I don't know, a Remembrance Day, uh, I think it was, sure. in Japan for Hiroshima. And so he, you know, left Tokyo and went there. And so while he was away, Rob did some guide vocals uh, for the songs that he wrote. You know, he wrote the lyrics okay, on, you know, yeah, because obviously yeah. the, you know, as I explained before, the lyrics from Midnight Oil are very often written by Rob and Jim on the songs that they initiated. And then Peter would write his own lyrics and, and a combination of the both would would be used. Uh, uh, um, so with um, the General's Talk, that was a, a Rob song. So Rob did the guide vocal, and it was a guide vocal. And the same thing happened with uh, Kosciuszko, of course. Um, Basically, Pete then came back, listened to the guide vocals, and loved them. I mean, it's it's actually that simple. He just thought, these are great. I don't need to yeah. do these. These are these are great, and I, I, you know, Rob was happy. Jim was. Everybody was happy with that. That, and they thought, well, that's different. You know, um, fair enough. Yeah. Um, and well, and, and cool. it's literally it's literally as simple as that. Um, obviously, we did want to have Pete in on on there because felt like it would make for a better song sounding like Midnight Oil. You know, Pete's such mm-hmm. a character. Yeah. So so obviously he's he comes in on the middle bit, which is. You know, n- yep. nobody could do the the middle section of <laughs> General's talk other than Pete. So yeah, that's that. Right on. N- not as digging up the dirt as I was no, wondering no, if it no, was going to be. No, it's all very, <laughs> no, and I'm all glad, very and I'm happy and amicable. Too. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. So uh, when Darren and I recorded a podcast specifically about Red Sails a few, few years ago, we remarked that of all Oil's albums, Red Sails sounds like a product of its time. Things like orchestra hits, uh, some weird meep meep uh, sounds that Darren and I have joked about in Harrisburg. Uh, even the breath in Harrisburg. Um, 1098 and Earth, Sun and Moon both sound a bit more timeless. Right. Um, do you have anything about, was that deliberate was it unavoidable was that uh what you brought to the band or did the band want that and and i think this is where nancy's um kind of quote from jim comes in a little bit too um can i just read you a quote from jim on this jim says i think we just got a bit crazy with overdubbing and string sections and drum machines i think we got into the technology a bit on it and we felt that maybe on the album we went a little bit away from the songwriting and more into the sonics yeah i think that's absolutely true Uh, and i think it is a sign of those times um you got to bear in mind that um a couple of years had passed on from doing 1098 and um digital had come into its own. I mean, it really had come into its own in in those few years. Well, two years we're talking about. I think um, digital sampling, for example, no one knew about digital sampling and triggering when ten nine eight was done. However, as I explained, I think in the last um, 
interview, um, we did have this uh, AMS delay that you could capture a sound and trigger it, but it, it had to be modified. It, it, the, the unit didn't come like that. I, I had one, I think maybe three or four other people in the whole of London had this modification done. Mm. So it was very, very, very uh, new. Uh, by the time Red Sales came along, people had sampling keyboards. Trevor Horn had done uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Uh, yeah. He'd done that. Yeah. Uh, well, there was that album that had those big orchestra stabs, which was actually Yes, you know, uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart. I think that oh, yeah, that, yeah. that had a big sure, impact yeah. on, on the world. Um, I think the Relax, uh, you know, Frankie thing had a big impact sonically. Trevor, Trevor mm -hmm. Horn was definitely the leading edge of 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 that kind of sampling and you know using the fairlight uh to trigger sounds i mean the first time i ever heard of a fairlight at all being used was peter gabriel on peter gabriel's third album but you know funnily enough the guy who maintained that that fairlight in other words knew how it worked when it went wrong because it did go wrong a lot was a guy called jj and JJ worked for Trevor Horn and was a member of the Art of Noise. Oh, right on. Oh, oh, so wow. you can see how all, all see how all this, uh, you know, follows on. So, yeah. you know, and the Art of Noise is actually a friend of mine called Gary Langan, who is a, a fantastic record producer who recorded and mixed a lot of the Trevor Horn records. Um, and then the Art of Noise was a sort of side project that, that Gary and JJ did and Trevor Horn loved it so much that he put it put it out on ZTT Records and and had obviously had his influence on it. So you can see how all these things add up and I guess being so close to Gary Langan and loving Trevor Horn's over the top production productions um mm -hmm. you know I I was influenced by that and put these sounds in perhaps because of that. And I mean, I don't regret them being there, but I absolutely acknowledge that they sound yeah. very 80s indeed. Um, <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, and I think the band was so in, into them. I mean, we're, you know, you're, you're in that moment oh, of yeah. that time and, and this stuff happens and, yeah. and, 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 and it's great. Yes. <laughs> things happen, yeah. Yeah, things happen. <laughs> no, that, and they're, and they're certainly done with enthusiasm. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. So even though there is a lot of, technology even a lot of digital a lot of digital sounds that we hear on the album there's still an even wider range of prominent acoustic instruments one thing for example the horn sections really stand out like uh, the endings of best of both worlds and jimmy sharman's boxers both songs have these epic endings and the the horns have so much to do with that how that happened <laughs> i'm very glad you're bringing this up because <laughs> it leads to a very fascinating story right on so if you can imagine obviously 1098 came out and did phenomenally well I mean, it did well everywhere in the world, but it did phenomenally well in Australia. I mean, it was, I think, in the top 50 for three years or something. It's, it's or top 100 for, wow. it, it really is. I mean, some people 
in the press have called it uh, the dark side of the moon of Australia and stuff like that, which is which yeah. is a, a lovely way of looking at it. Um, but um, <laughs> but you know, obviously, it, it, the end of so the end of Power and the Passion has those horns at the end, right? And it's epic and it's fantastic and it's it's yes. you know and 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 who would have thought that the horn part would be the best and biggest way of ending a song like that. And it, you know, in, in the same way that all the harmonies on the chorus of Power and the Passion work so well and are loved so much, uh, the horns also became this almost like a staple example of a Midnight Oil song, like, a, a, a you know, their... Mm what makes them known. I mean, if you listen to certainly a, a lot of Diesel and Dust, including um, Beds Are Burning, it's the same formula. It's it's a characterful vocal on the verse by Pete, you know, three-part harmonies on the chorus, and then an ending that is huge with horns and, you know, it's, you know, this is what happens with bands. Mm. Bands do their thing and eventually something hits the mark that everybody loves, including the band. And it becomes, yeah, that works. Let's do that again. And obviously you try not to, you know, do what uh, some bands do um, where you copy it so much yeah. that it's just part two. But but it, it's just one of these things where like, yeah, let's have more of that. That was great. So cut sure. to being in Tokyo and um, we've got these songs that uh, need, a, need a horn part. Here's what happened uh, with uh, best, best of both worlds. The horn players come in. That you know, We found them, obviously, by asking locals, we need a horn section. Who's the best horn section that can work in the studio? Um, the horn players arrive with an orchestra leader, you know, like you know which which is not mm -hmm. how the yeah. the english stuff was done the english stuff on power and the passion was basically four players in the room no orchestra leader uh it may have been, the parts were written out i think by jim and gary barnacle who was the sax player who was the leader of of that that horn section oh okay um uh, big credit to to gary barnacle by the way he's on you know, he's an incredible player. I haven't seen him in years, but a very close friend. He played on many records that I did after that. Um, mm. And it was a very simple thing. I, th I think it was four people, to my memory, maybe three people. It wasn't a big section, uh, but they kicked ass and it's incredible. So cut to Japan. I think we had many more players. Um, they're all sitting down, as of often do, with all the parts written out. Jim had, had written them out and, and it had been translated where necessary. So we had the players, the orchestra leader with a baton, and our translator, right, who was an American... Um, he was a, a sumo wrestler journalist for Time magazine. So he's an American <laughs> who had lived in Japan for a long time. Really cool guy. But huge muscles. I mean, he was he was like V-shaped, you know. He wasn't a big sumo wrestler type guy. <laughs> yeah. He was just like he had he was a tough looking dude. Um, very polite. 
So if you can imagine the scene, the band in the control room with me, the horn players out there, um, and, you know, lots of, uh, you know, talking between us with a translator. So we do the first take, and it honestly sounds awful. It sounds mm. like a Casio keyboard playing the horn parts and it sounds so cheesy and even the notes sound is bad i mean it just sounded mm. like yeah it did, just didn't sound good at all and we're scratching our heads going why and jim's obviously really worried because he's like maybe i maybe i should look at the writing and maybe we should change the notes to be cooler it just sounds cheesy so Jim goes out, discussion is had, a few notes might might be changed, take two. No better at all. It just sounds weak. And I'm thinking, maybe, I, you know, I'm using all the microphones that I usually use. I'd need to distort it more. So I'd move the microphones, put more room mics to give it a vibe, distort some things, take three. The same. It, it just doesn't work. And we're like, okay, well, let's... Maybe not have horns on this song. This is, it just sounds like a bad karaoke version. You know, <laughs> we're, we're obviously, you know, Japanese people are very, very, very polite and uh, sensitive, I would say. And there's a lot of like, what do we do? And so our, our translator says, is there a way that I can explain to them? Because they seem to be very confused and now they're very worried that we're not happy, and mm. um, and and I and I just said, well, the problem is that it just doesn't sound very rock and roll. It's it's so in tune and so in time that it actually mm. sounds like a keyboard sampler of of these. It, it sounds like a Yamaha uh, keyboard. I said, well, maybe don't say Yamaha. Maybe say it sounds like a keyboard. We don't want to make it all about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, don't, we don't want to confuse this. <laughs> Um, and it just needs to sound more rock and roll. And 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 Pete, you know, said, um, yeah, it's just like, you know, you know, he mentioned Power and the Passion. He said, you know, the guys on Power and Passion could barely hit the notes. I mean, that's why it sounds great is because it was so high. It's just like, sure. you know, then the translator goes, is it all in Japanese? And that there's lots of, oh, I saw this guy. And you know, yeah, you know, like, and they're all talking about it. Yeah. One minute, please. All this talking, we're going like, what's this? And they said, please, one more take. And we go, okay, take four. Okay. They take the trumpets and they were bending them and, and pulling out the, the mouthpieces were being adjusted. Um, reeds were being changed in yeah. the instruments. One guy took off his jacket, you know, because they were dressed in suits. Another guy took off his <laughs> jacket and was making... Hey, I got rock and roll, rock and roll. This kind of talk was going on. <laughs> okay, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah. Take four. Here we go. Record. Absolutely amazing. It was incredible. <laughs> we were all like, wow, that's amazing. Oh that's just incredible. <laughs> and we were like, obviously, 
just jumping up and down with joy because it was a very awkward moment. And, uh, and they were all like, and they stood up. They stood up and played it. Yeah. And and at the end, they're all like putting their fists up in the air. It was fantastic. <laughs> and we were like, yes, yes, that's it. What did you do? And they said, I know, uh, rock and roll, rock and roll. You know, like this is rock and roll. And right it's like hilarious. And, and so the, the, the translator said, uh, what, you know, what did you actually do? And they said, oh, well, we just put all our instruments out of tune and just played it badly. <laughs> 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 and you know Nuts. it's it's funny it is really funny but you know rock and roll is all about spirit and yeah the best rock and roll isn't in tune i mean listen listen to the guitars on, on, on rolling stone records <laughs> some of them have got four strings and even those four strings aren't in tune oh. with each other you know it's <laughs> it is really all about there was a big big lesson learned with that one that kind of leads maybe into my next question um just trying to to think about maybe if there was a deliberate contrast between technology and and studioness on an album and then more of the acoustic stuff for example in who can stand in the way at the end of that song there's like a banjo mandolin guitar almost like a rockabilly type ending or helps me helps you is kind of got right. that real down home almost uh acoustic feeling was there a, a deliberate um, attempt to to bring that kind of contrast between the human element of the acoustic instruments and the technology of the studio together on that album? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's probably when people listen to the album, that's how it comes across. And I would say at the end of the day, that would be a statement that me and the band could proudly put forward. I think in reality, the preparation for this album was less than 1098 mm. uh, for various reasons. The demos were not as worked out. Uh, some songs were. Some songs were. Like Best of Both Worlds, absolutely. The demo was fantastic. And if I played it to you, you'd hear the same song. But there were a lot of, lot of songs. Mm. I mean, um, Sleep for instance, you know, that was created yeah. in the studio. There was a demo, but it doesn't resemble yeah. the final thing. And and to be honest, we, we just had a lot of fun with this record. I think, obviously, the band were a, a much more successful band. Uh, perhaps a lot of money mm -hmm. has been had been made from 1098, and there was the luxury of time. Uh, we're in an incredibly exciting country. I mean, Japan... Uh, certainly Tokyo at that time, it was like stepping into the future. It, it, they had things mm. that had never been seen outside. It was like being transported into the future. And I think that um, we had more time. I think that album took four months to record. Uh, perhaps we were there for three months and then more was done. Um, you know, and, and I think also Peter being... Um, away for a good chunk of the record following his passion for for politics and um that gave us more time there wasn't really urgency or hurry i mean we had this time and and obviously having done one very successful record we felt excited and and uh, about experimenting so we did and and i think a lot of the tracks have that experimentation on them and, and loud mm -hmm. in the mix. 
there's a number of maybe you could even call them silly or strange moments on red sails. Yes, there's lots. Uh, like, <laughs> pe- yeah, there's ton- tons of them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, for example, in General's talk, there's Pete's rant about, you know, his his talking about the different uh, yep. generals, which is already like a, an odd moment. And, and I still remember listening to that for the first time in my bedroom. I was probably 15 or something, listening to Pete talk about these different generals and there's this pitch bend uh i think he says like general and and the pitch goes way down yeah even the fact that baker man is on the album at all this this (laughs) instrumental thing so were you influenced by other records as well or or were you just having fun what was going on there i'd have to say guilty as charged <laughs> i mean <laughs> it, it it uh wasn't a case of thinking forward and doing as decided it's very much a case of trying to put an album together when a member was missing and um mm. we had quite a lot of good material but we needed more material and left to their own devices, people like me and Jim <laughs> go a little crazy. Yeah. Because we have lots of yeah. ideas. So we would just kept adding more and more crazy stuff. And uh with no regrets at all. I mean, I think I, I really yeah. think that Red Sales is an extraordinary album, and I do mean extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's very much a case of of us going a little bit crazy and ha- having a bit too much fun. And, yeah. um, you know, which me and Jim put us in a room together. We will do that. We've done it many, many, many times <laughs> uh, since. Uh, and, and and not all on Midnight Oil stuff. We did we did a, a project. Me and Jim did a project together called Fuzzface, which was really fun. And, yes. and, uh, and awesome. we've worked together on other other things, other people's stuff we work together on. And it's it's just, I mean, me, I don't know, you know, me, me and Jim are just like, brothers in music we just we we almost don't need to to say talk to each other about what we're doing we just do it and it always comes out great it's 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 great it's a wonderful 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 relationship and um i i think you could probably attribute all the silliness pretty much to me and jim <laughs> uh and and yeah. uh, going going <laughs> actually specifically back to general's talk this was a time where i was doing lots and lots of 12 inch remixes Right. It was right. the mid eighties. We're talking what, 85, 86 around there. Um, and I'd done many, I mean, especially for in excess, I did most of their 12 inch mm. remixes, which is basically taking a recording that's already done and messing with it and trying effects and trying digital looping and stuff like that. And I'd had a lot of success with this and it was very much of its time a bit like what we were talking about earlier with mm-hmm. with the trevor horn thing so that song to me was a bit of an odd song anyway um and i thought i'll just treat it i'll mix it like i'm doing a 12 inch mix and take it from its straightforward track and also it's a dance beat it's a very unusual mm-hmm. song right I did this crazy remix of it, sent it to the band, honestly thinking that it would be an alternative mix 
or a 12 inch mix because I think there's a longer version of it out as well, right? And it's it's a shortened version of that. I think so. I, maybe I'm wrong about that. You should dig around in your yeah. tapes and if you find it, <laughs> let right. us know. I will. <laughs> maybe, maybe it never got released. Um, and yeah, I sent it to the band and they loved it. They just thought it was great. And I was actually a bit, are you sure? You know? And then when it's like, <laughs> oh my God, it's the first track on the record, I was really shocked. I, I was really shocked. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, I get this uh, because it's a bit like what happened with 1098, where you start the record mm-hmm. with something shocking and then you follow it up with something that fans expect or, or, or are hoping that's going to be there. And sure enough, mm-hmm. it, it is, you know? So that that's the story behind that. And all that experiment you know pitching uh it's just something that i was doing and the art of noise was definitely an influence Mm -hmm. and people were loving this because it had never been heard before it's a bit like you got a new gimmick it's like having a camera angle or new cgi thing and then suddenly you see it on all films it's that sure uh, do i regret it no i'm amused by it and i'm i I, you know i cringe a little bit at some of it to be honest but but again, I think it's it's of its time. Um, yeah. It was very liked. I mean, that song came out and people loved it. So that's <laughs> that's yeah. the story behind that one. <laughs> right yeah. on. Oh, that's great. Uh, was the album called Red Sails in the Sunset while you were while it was being written and recorded, or did the that name arrive after? And, and while I'm at it, how about the cover art? Did did you have of that scene in Sydney yeah. after a nuclear strike? Were those in mind while the album was being recorded, or was did that come after? Um, I you know I'm very often when doing these records not aware of the ideas with the artwork and the title mm-hmm. of the album. All that stuff is very much artist decision stuff. And it, it and they usually don't... It's very rare that a band has the title of the record when you start the record. It usually comes okay. actually way after the record's delivered. So that that's the case with this. However, I will say that with this album, once the artwork, you know, suddenly was, was coming in, and uh, they did it with um, uh, Kimura, who is a very, very uh, inc- incredible Japanese artist that had that was known for his pol- political satire uh, in 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 photo montage. I mean, he's extraordinary. Tunezio Kimura. I I um, I, yep. I think everybody listening should Google him and look at his work and if you see his work you'll see how all his artwork in the album i mean if you look at the inner sleeve there's many other things i think they mm-hmm. they went in yeah. basically pete and rob from my memory pete and rob would often go into the record company art department and um what, what they did obviously lots of different ideas of artwork which you can see in the, the inner sleeve yeah and I, yeah. clearly chose that one because it's extraordinary absolutely extraordinary cover i love it i mean i i was i love it when you do a record and the artwork is phenomenal like that it just mm, makes yeah. the whole thing i'm also very disappointed sometimes when the artwork comes back and it's just like i can't even relate that to the music that we've done it's mm. it's perhaps one of the most disappointing things this is the opposite this is i mean i'm i love that artwork um i i think that the title 
Red Sails in the Sunset, it was absolutely decided on when that cover was decided on. Mm. I think that they come hand in hand. I mean, I don't know that, but for fact, but that, yeah. to me that, because obviously, you know, Australia being, you know, has the red earth, beautiful mm-hmm. sun and light and red sails. And so it sort of implies perhaps nuclear bombs and the whole Hiroshima yeah. thing that was going on with Pete. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a combination of all that. And it just, yeah. that, that, that made sense. Can we talk about Martin a little bit? Yes, we because need to. We need to. He's the quiet one. Okay, good. He's the he's yeah. he's well, yeah, the George exactly. Harrison of the band. Well, okay. So this is how I wrote my question then, because Martin is often the sober second thought or the quiet voice of reason in the band. He doesn't demand of a lot a lot of attention. Um, but I was wondering if you've got any stories about him and his guitars, because this morning, as I was listening to Best of Both Worlds and that ripping guitar part, I really hope that's Martin doing that ripping guitar. Yeah. Part. I was just wondering, how, like, how you would capture his sonic assaults, especially on Red Sails. I mean, I've got to say, Martin, I, I would absolutely put him as one of the best guitar players I've ever, mm. ever, ever worked with. I put him and Jim as equal. Uh, they're both extraordinary. Yeah. Martin, um, because we've spoke a lot about Jim, Martin. It is extremely accurate. I mean, his dexterity is just phenomenal. He was mm. uh, just one of those people who was born with great accuracy of movement of fingers and hands. And, uh, you know, he is an extraordinarily successful golfer. He plays golf and he is kicking ass <laughs> oh, really? out there. Yeah. So, and, you know, he is just great with sport type things he's just that guy who can do that now when you apply that to a guitar it's just he's on he's never ever off he's Mm -hmm. just on and the interesting thing about martin is that he he plays as rock and rollers should very very slightly ahead of the beat giving it that edge Mm -hmm. which is you know what i'm talking about some guitar players yeah yeah play behind the beat and that's their thing i mean eric clapton you know his slow hand clap you know that's his thing is yeah. i mean obviously there's a lot of eric clapton where he's playing ahead because that's what you know with the rhythm guitars it's like or bang on but you know that people have their character martin with his rhythm guitar playing and his solos he's just that very slightly bit ahead and edgy and that's mm-hmm. what gives midnight oil that that rock and roll that we want. I dare say, I would, I would say his playing is similar to the guys in ACDC. You know, it's, it's okay, that yeah. kind of just on it and ahead and bang, you know, and it's yeah. like great, great riff player and great at coming up with those riffs. And what's interesting about Midnight Oil is that Jim is very, very slightly behind the beat. Like I'm talking... Mm. I'm not talking about looseness. I'm talking about a decision of playing uh, that mm-hmm. makes a band. So when editing, which there are a lot of edits on the multi-track of both these records, uh, all done analog, 
when I edit on, say, the kick drum or snare, which is what you usually use as your guide to, to edit, I would always yeah. just chop very slightly ahead. I'd just make a marker hmm. and it was, I can tell you, it's uh, at 30 IPS on tape. It would be <laughs> about two millimeters. So it's we're talking very little. We're talking about the width of your average school pencil ah. to, to, to include Martin's downstroke because he's going, you know, and, and, yeah. and Jim is always that very slightly same amount later. And that's what gives the thickness. Now, when you, if I can just elaborate on this a little bit more, you'll notice on a Please lot do. of 1098 and Red Sails and, well, actually all the records I've made with them, there's a lot of acoustic guitars and those acoustic guitars don't sound flimsy. They sound big no. and raw and yeah. powerful. And it's it's a sound that is, you know, it's it's a big thing. Yeah. The, the way we got that is by choosing two guitars. Uh, one would usually be a, 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 a very old, vintage, beautiful Martin, that's the brand Martin guitar, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, which they make some of the best. Because he was the best. young man at the time. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're yeah. one of yeah. the best sounding acoustics ever made, um, which actually I believe Martin owned. Uh, and And sometimes we'd use... A Dobro, which is a very mid-rangey yeah. thing. Now, there are lots of different types of Dobros, uh, but why would EQ it and take out the honk of that and make it sound more like a very thick guitar? So Jim would usually play that and Martin would play the Martin. And we'd run it from top of the song to the end of the song with them both strumming away in their incredibly accurate way. Then they would swap places. Now, bear in mind that they're also sometimes choosing slightly different chords. Um, this was always discussed between them uh, just to make it um, thicker. But they would swap places mm. and we'd double track it. But the other way, I'd pan so that you had uh, guitar and dobro on one side, guitar and dobro on the other side, but with opposite players. So it, it just became this sound. We did this on every song that you hear by Midnight Oil that I was involved with that has mm. acoustics. That is the sound. Sometimes we went even crazy, like on US Forces back on 1098. I think there's actually eight guitars strumming away. But the accuracy of playing is such that it does, <laughs> it just sounds like one very huge guitar. I want to add that I have tried, because I'm so impressed with this sound, and it's such a great sound and it's very percussive, I've tried doing this same thing with other bands I've worked with. It doesn't work. It doesn't work mm-hmm. uh, because no. it's to do with the chemistry between Martin and Jim, and and that, and and their spacing, and the the way they're they're looking at each other and looking at the strokes, the up and down strokes, you know, like all that stuff is they're yeah. doing the same. They're they're that good, yeah. and it's a very big part of the records I made with them. I think it's the video for the dead heart, you know, mm-hmm. later it opens with Jim and Martin sitting beside each other in the outback, but you can just see how perfectly their their right arm, their strumming is it's incredible. They're absolutely it's incredible. in sync. Yeah. And yeah. And it really stood out even, even then uh, I just watched that. I think that's so cool. 
how how absolutely in sync they are yeah 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 i mean they, they yeah it's just uh, one of those great things that we are blessed to be able to hear and it's fantastic mm. that they met each other and got in the same band you know it's just it's just a great thing yeah. going back to martin uh and his solos uh they're always so much fun to to do and watch because as quiet and reserved a person he is when he's got a guitar on suddenly he becomes this other character and the way he moves and he moves around the studio and it's it's just so exciting to watch it really didn't take many takes he's one of those guitar players where he'll have an idea and he will do it and he will do it first take and that is it Hmm. and you'll do another take just to see what happens but it's very often it's first take second take and and then it's a case of if that's not right and you want another idea then get another guitar get a different sound and go out there and do another idea and sometimes we mm. would chop between the two oh right on so so like with helps me helps you for instance it's the whole song has got this almost rockabilly you know, it's like Stray Cats kind of feel mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so come the solo, you, you're just dying to hear that, right? You just want it to go... <laughs> so, you know, and it was a lot of fun. You know, Martin was like, you know, there was there was an absolute awareness of how uh, th- that song is what it is. But, but let's give it our own angle, Midnight Oil's angle on it. And he, so he did a, quite a few solos with that because he had a lot of ideas and then I chopped between them um, I did some editing between them to get the most exciting bit so it is an edited solo of some great takes and I think I think that's very often I mean it's it's kind of how I work uh, I don't know if everybody works that way but it was very much a case of like wow we want that bit in there we want that bit in there oh that yeah. bit's good mm-hmm. yeah. I mean there was no shortage of great bits so it was all put in there and you'll notice I think that there are different guitar sounds that make up the solo and some bits have more reverb you know it's 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 oh, it's, right. it's it's well manicured uh but only <laughs> only out of enthusiasm of of getting the right vibe for each each little nuance you know not not out of uh, need to fix something that wasn't there it's it's just i mean martin yeah, he's just su- such a such a he's just such a cool guy. He's just so cool, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, and, um, always smiling is the other thing with Martin. He's just there, smiling, very amused. He's very amused by everybody <laughs> in the room. You know, it's quite funny. It's like he, he very often will look look at people and go, "No, no, that's all right. Go figure. That's it. Yep, that's yep." You know, the voice of reason, for sure. Mm-hmm. Another question we had is about Giffo. I think we started talking about his playing on the stick, playing Chapman's stick. Yeah. So we were wondering, like, how about sleep in particular? Can you, can you tell us about uh, Giffo and his Chapman stick and sleep? Yes, gladly. Sleep being one of my favorite songs if not my favorite song from the album mine too mine too i love that track it's so bizarre and wonderful and it's just like you wouldn't think that it would have such a groove going on to it it does oh it's fantastic i know it's well needless to say sometime between 1098 and Red Sails, 
a, a version of a well-known band was formed with Adrian Ballou and Tony Levin in the band. Mm. Name that band. Yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> I recognize Tony Levin's name, but I don't know. Okay. So Tony Levin obviously made a huge, huge impact, I would say, on the world of music with his bass playing on Peter Gabriel's third album. We're, ba- we're back to that ah, one, I'm afraid. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Huge Good. influence Good. on us all, I guess. And this strange, bizarre sound that we were like, what is that? It's got a flanger on it, but it sounds like it's got more than four strings. <laughs> of course, it was this, this thing called the stick. So when Midnight Oil were back in England at some point between doing 1098 and Red Sails, probably touring, we all went to see King Crimson, which is the mm. newer version of King Crimson with Tony Levin and Adrian Ballou, which is quite a different okay. sounding band to the 70s version. And sure enough, there we see Tony Levin doing this thing with the stick, this stuff. I'm like, wow, so cool. So at that point, Giffo gets one and masters it, absolutely masters this this very bizarre instrument. Mm. And not only that, the reason you don't hear that sound on other records is because it's a very particular way it's set up with a compressor and a, a, a some kind of flanger. And, and we knew what those were mm. because I actually worked with Tony Levin in between the two records as well. So mm. we, we basically had the same setup. And Giffo played that bass line on the stick, and it just sounds wonderful. And mm-hmm. Giffo really shone so bright on Red Sails' album. I mean, there's many, many songs where his yeah. bass playing is, I mean, it's extraordinary. It's not, it's not the usual rock and roll playing. You know, it's just, um, it's just very imaginative, and you know, it's sort of thing that you'd expect more. On a Joy Division record, it's got that kind mm. of darkness and weirdness to it that you'd expect that. But then, you know, it also had, let's say, complicated notes that, you know, would be more akin to being on a, you know, a King Crimson record or or, 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 or a Peter Gabriel uh-huh. record or something like that. Mm-hmm. But without it being kind of a uh, bad taste, which, you know, I, I have a bit of a problem with a lot of bands that are, would be known as prog rock. I just find them yeah. cheesy. I think the choice of notes is like, yeah, you're just showing off. That, I don't think mm. that's great music. That's just, look what I can do. And I don't feel that that Midnight Oil are like that. They're not showing off what they can yeah. do. They, they've got enough punk rock in them to not do that. And it's definitely a, a choice uh, that they make because it very often would come up where they do something a little bit flash and it'd be like no remove that that's not that's not um necessary i mean you know there are if you think about it with midnight or there aren't as many guitar solos as you'd expect from a from a band with such great guitar players and and it's very the guitar solos are very specifically put in certain songs because you just need to have them there that song needs to Mm -hmm. do that at that point yeah, at one point we were we had a running total of guitar solos going on. Right. As we were one like in 2017 when we were going through the catalog album by album, we had the, yeah. the guitar solo. Yeah, and we tally. noticed that was kind of going downhill a little bit, like the not downhill in quality, but the quantity of guitar solos wasn't quite as high as we 
with Yeah, it, 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 true. Yeah. And, and you know what? There were guitar solos that were done and, and taken out. Uh, it, it's just, it's wow. an absolute uh, you know, topic of discussion in the studio often of sure. we don't need that, you know. It's cliche. That's that's it's a cliche thing to do. Yeah, yeah they can. Yeah. And and it's yeah. a very easy. Oh, we need a we need an instrumental break. Two guitar players. Let's put a guitar solo. No, rip one out. No, yeah. let's not. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bakerman, the instrumental at the uh, end of side one of Red Sails. It's credited to Rob Hurst. I'm wondering, do you know, like, did he write all the parts for the instruments and, and who played that? And, and were there words to it? Was it part of a longer song? What's the story behind Bakerman? Isn't it fantastic? Well, it is. It's just amazing. So here's what I'm going to say about it. When you have such a delight, how can you not put it on the record? Yeah, that's that's. But where did it come from? It was written. It was written. <laughs> what do you mean? It, it was written. It was written. It, it was, was great. Written. It's a lovely thing. <laughs> it's a lovely piece. It's like an interlude, isn't it? It's an interlude. It's yes. like we're going from this to that. What are you, what are you trying not to tell us? <laughs> there, there isn't much of a story behind it. We're talking about. Like, was this the Japanese orchestra that played there? This is. Oh no, no, that was recorded in in Japan. That was all Japanese musicians. Okay. Uh, quite young musicians, yeah. kids. Okay. And yeah, um, yeah it was, it, you know, this is an era of record making when everybody was doing what what they wanted, what the hell they wanted. There was no, yeah. there was no rules, no laws. The more wacky and crazy and yeah. experimental <laughs> you could be, then that was it. And after all, you know, listen to... Pink Floyd records and oh, all, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. or, or, or listen to, here's a good example, um, Udgin's Nut Gone Flake, you know. Excuse me? Listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that fantastic, probably one of the best studio crazy albums of all time by The Small Faces. Hmm. Udgin's Nut Gone Flake. Do you know this record? You, you two need I, to go I listen. Don't. I, I guess yes. so. That should be my quote regarding Baker okay. Man. This is our homework yeah. for next time. Yeah, we got homework now. So Rob just wrote this neat little instrumental bit and yeah. the band recorded yeah. it. Yeah, and, and we recorded it with and... uh, some some kids in, uh, in Japan and it's turned out great and it's on the record and it's yeah. and it's it's yeah. it, it for it's it's a form of interlude okay yeah. okay yeah. let's go somewhere else for a bit and then let's come back yeah i don't believe there was much head scratching about oh is this a bit silly or oh is this you know what is this i think it's yeah. exactly what it is it's it's like the, <laughs> the album's pretty crazy let's go yeah. there too uh, i mean the other one the other one uh, that's a bit crazy is obviously harrisburg that one was kind of like, should that be on the record or not? Well, and there's a, there's a little bit of controversy, I think, because of, of the lyrics being based upon on the poem. But like sonically, you're thinking like with the, the breathing apparatus and stuff right. going on. Is, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 getting inside Jim's head mm. type song. He has a love of poetry. He's a well-read man. 
and mm-hmm. I think that that's all in there. But sonically, yeah. it, it was kind of a song. I think that we weren't sure how to do it, uh, you know, in a mm-hmm. in a normal rock way. And mm-hmm. we had this. We're in Japan, and there were lots of really cool inventions coming out that were, uh, in particular, a kids' toys. So we had time to okay. go to a lot of these huge department stores that had a had a floor with kids stuff and a lot of these kids toys were musical instruments that did strange things and mm. one of them was this casio keyboard which was very much like the ones available in all around the world except the ones that are around in the world are white and they have orange keys right. and brown bits and they're kind of kind of designed to look normal whereas the Japanese mm-hmm. versions are bright pink, bright purple, or aqua blue, and they've got nothing but Japanese writing on them, and they've got lots of little funny drawings of funny things, people and cats sure. and dogs and mice, and funny little words yep. with, you know, Japanese. And you push them, yep. and it's basically samples of animals, and samples okay, of all yep. kinds of noises, and car horns, and... So suddenly, yep. you know, you play this and you can actually play a musical part using samples. Bear yeah. in mind that digital was in its infancy and this was an extraordinary thing that this little plastic toy that probably cost 20 bucks could do this. And so we chose carefully the, the sounds that are not too silly. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's what you hear on, on Harrisburg. And it's like this very yeah. serious topic, quite dark topic. Yeah. With these funny yes. little Japanese noises on it. Yeah. You know, that's what that's what it is. The whole thing of doing it in Tokyo was truly surreal and bizarre. Normality after about a week or two went out the window. It was like we had traveled to another planet into the future. Time had no relevance to the rest of the world and any ideas that came, we did. I mean, I could tell you Mm. lots of very amusing stories about Midnight Oil and me being in Tokyo at that time. I mean, (laughs) they're they're worth telling if you have the time. We'll go for for the moment. I'll just go into um, after a while, we did run out of time. I mean, we, we were... Working very, very hard, but there were a lot of ideas and we kept going and kept going and kept going. And then it was getting like, you know, we've really got to get back to our our, our homes now. You know, we've been here a long time and we're going a little crazy. Most of the record was mixed in England. I did try okay. and do a couple of mixes in Japan, but it didn't work out that well. And it, and it wasn't... Maybe my mind wasn't in the right place or urgency. You know, there was a couple of mixes that were done there. Harrisburg was mixed at a different studio. We recorded the whole album in uh, uh, Aoyama Studios, which belonged to JVC, the ja- which stands for Japanese Victor Company. The reason we ended up at that studio is because they had um, SSL consoles, which I was very used to, and it's what I recorded 1098 on. And the Sony Mm -hmm. studio, bear in mind, they were signed to Sony. So the natural thing for us to do when going to Tokyo was to work at Sony's studio. However, Sony's studio, uh, at that point, Sony, the company, bought out MCI, 
the American company mm -hmm. that makes desks and tape machines, which is a great company as well. So all their studios had MCI equipment. I didn't particularly enjoy working on MCI. Uh, I preferred SSL and insisted that we had to work in an SSL. So Sony and JVC did this trade-off. They took one of their bands right. that was on JV Victor label in Japan and gave them Sony studio time. And they gave us a Sony artist, Midnight Oil Sony okay. artist, time at JVC. We did a swap. However, our album yeah. took three months and the Japanese album that went over there probably took two weeks. So <laughs> there's probably a lot of politics going on about that. But anyway, um, we ran out of time and I went to mix Harrisburg at this bizarre jingle studio somewhere else in Tokyo. It was I remember okay. it was on the top floor of this commercial building and there was this very lovely recording studio which was used to doing sessions that lasted two or three hours i go in there to mix harrisburg and i only needed one day or so i thought hmm. i'm literally there from midday till five in the morning japanese people are very scheduled they are yeah. Most assistant engineers do not work more than eight hours before the next assistant comes in. I, without realizing it, caused absolute havoc at this studio. Oh. They didn't know what was going on. They thought I was absolutely crazy. And think about the song as well. Well, actually, the song probably didn't sound that crazy to them. It probably sounded like a jingle. But <laughs> it was, I literally, the next day I had to come in and finish it. And I was putting chairs up against the door to stop the musicians <laughs> coming in to do their jingle, probably paying yeah. way more than we were paying. And it was all scheduled with advertising. I mean, I do not know why. I mean, I could have got arrested. I don't know. It was absolute <laughs> mayhem at that studio. So... That's my memory of Harrisburg is finishing that song going, no, no, you don't understand. I have to finish this song. I'm getting on a plane back to England. The band are going to Australia. We have to get this song done. This song has to be done and I'm going to finish it no matter what. And I don't want anybody coming through that That's door. Right. And they were like, ah, oh, so this, I know, maybe many musician, uh, accountant, uh, he doesn't know how to pay i was like oh my yeah. god these guys are going to get paid for sitting in reception while i'm doing my it was yeah, yeah stressful beyond stressful all my creation <laughs> my fault uh but there it is it's on the record Thank you very much, Nick, for spending another hour or so with us today. This has been fantastic yeah. listening to the stories and hearing about the recording process and working with the band. The listeners really enjoyed last time, and, and yeah. we're all looking forward to talking to you about Earth and Sun and Moon, if you would come back for that. Fantastic. It's, yes. my, it's my pleasure. Glad these stories are getting out there and very happy that yeah. people are in, enjoying, enjoying it. Let's, uh, let's just keep going. Just do one a week. I would love to. Yeah, you can be you can be our new co-host if you like. Yeah. Let's you know, do it. Be okay with us. Well, and with that, it's time to I guess slide red sails back into its sleeve and say good night to 
you and to Mr. Lane until next time, when we're going to be talking to Nick Lane again about some earth and sun and moon recording stories here on Comfortable Place on the Couch, a Midnight Oil podcast. Meet me. <laughs> Corrections, comments, hate mail, questions for your favorite Midnight Oil producer. You can send us an email to our new podcast email address, oilscouch at gmail.com. You can visit darrenfolds.com slash podcasts for any show notes that we might had. And you can tweet us on the Twitter at Darren Folds. And 8-Bit Show and Tell. Yes, whatever Robin's Twitter <laughs> happens to be this it's, week. Apparently Robin Harbin is an at all on Twitter. So for Robin Harbin and Nick Lane, onwards and upwards. I'm Darren Folds. Good night. Good night. See you guys next week. Hi everybody, the world was silent and the door was shut. The album ends with Shipyards of New Zealand. Yes. Have you ever thought that song is about a sheep? <laughs> no. Okay. No, I okay. hadn't. I, I, but I'm going to go listen to it now. I'm going to go listen to it, and I'm going to th- and and think of sheep. Um, yeah, I've I've just had this theory for a few years, and not not many people have agreed with it. But just just in case you did, well, that, that's why. When the, yeah, we should ask the band. I, I'm sure. I wouldn't be surprised if their answer was yes. Pro- it would probably also be like, mate, if you can bring sheep into the picture at any point, you gotta. <laughs> you gotta do it, yeah. Right on. <laughs>